Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and for your grace, for who you are and all that you are to us. And Lord, it's amazing to watch how you move and breathe in and through your church, and that Lord, even through this Mountain Valley experience, what um, you're going to be doing in and through them and us as we unite into uh, an even stronger body together. I, I pray, God, that as we turn to your word now, that you might speak to our minds and our hearts. Uh, may our, our meditations of our thoughts and the tenderness of our hearts be very pleasing to you, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning, we're going to talk about prayer. Prayer, this, this idea of talking to and with God. And though some of you here today are veteran prayer people and you think, well, I'm not sure there's really much for me to learn, what we all need to begin with this morning is the reality that to the uninitiated, prayer is an ominous and daunting activity. It is. But what seems very simple and straightforward and even clear to some of us is not so simple, not so straightforward, not so clear to people that are either just starting out or even who have been Christians for a while but never developed a very robust prayer life. And we need to own that and honor that today. If you don't believe me, I want you to, I want you to watch this rather funny comedian on this video right now, and I think you're going to see what I mean, because I can sure relate when I first became a Christian to what this guy is talking about. Look up here on the screen. I remember going to church as an adult, right, for the first time when I started going to church, and I would walk in, and the pastor was like, he said, I want you to pray with your neighbor. And I'm like, well, my neighbor don't go to this church. I don't know if you mean you want me to call my neighbor on the phone? That's creepy. I ain't going to do that. Right? Then they explained to me, right? Your neighbor is a person sitting next to you. Listen, I'm brand new at this Christian stuff. I don't, not, I didn't even know you're supposed to pray out loud, let alone with this lady. I don't even know this lady. What am I supposed to pray about? Lord, help these bumps go down on this lady's face. I don't know what to, I don't to pray about. I don't know what I'm supposed to pray about, right? She went first. She was praying all good, and she must have been John the Baptist's little sister or something. <laughs> she was like, dear Heavenly Father, you said in your word in the sixth chapter, the third, third verse of the book of Matthew, the 601st word on page 1248. <laughs> Lord, you said, but seek. S is in search. E is in everywhere. E is in excellent. K is in kingdom. You're the Alpha Nisi, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha. I'm thinking, man, she even know his nicknames. <laughs> now, it's my turn to pray, right? But I don't got the spiritual vocabulary to just, but I'm not going to let her out pray me. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, God, first of all, you are good people. You know, you are good, Lord. You are good. You were good to the last drop, Lord. Because, um, Lord, I, I just got to obey my thirst, Lord. You know, because choosy moms choose Jesus. So, Lord, because, you know, as the, as the rocket's red glare, Lord, it gave proof to the night, Lord. I believe I can fly, amen. I don't know about you guys, but I can so relate to that. 
I mean, when I first became a Christian and I realized I had to pray in front of people, I felt exactly like that. And when I was especially with some of you veteran prayer people that just had this thing down, it's intimidating to say the least. And here's the deal as we move into our, our avenue of prayer today. When Jesus was on this earth, he was very aware that his followers, you and me, needed some help on how to pray. He was. And on multiple occasions, Jesus talked about prayer, told us what it was and even how to do it, and then even modeled for us what praying looked like and how we're supposed to come before God. And so let's read about this from Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 35 to 39. And as our Cactus Campus, our chapel, and our venue are with us, what do we all do when we read the Gospels? We stand. So out of respect for God, would you stand? And I'm going to be reading this text here. This is very, very early on in Jesus' public ministry. Get this, he has only four active disciples. He'll eventually have 12, only four at this point. It's that early on in his ministry. But he's ready to start modeling for us prayer. Follow along as I read. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions hunted for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, in order that I may preach there also, for that was what I came out for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. Would you please be seated? Now, some of you are saying right now, well, Jamie, it only mentions prayer there like once. It doesn't really tell us anything about how to pray. I mean, what are you going to derive from prayer in this passage? Believe it or not, there's a lot more here than meets the eye. That when you do more of a deep dive, when you look below the surface of what's going on in this amazing story here, it teaches us some profound things about prayer. So notice two things for our purposes this morning. And this is the first thing, and that is that it's telling us to truly know God, you must regularly carve out both time and space and then focus upon him. I know that sounds so simple, but I've chosen my words very carefully there. To truly know God, you need to regularly carve out both time and space that is dedicated to solely focusing upon him. Now, to see what I mean, let's remind ourselves of the context of this scene, and you'll begin to see the profundity of this in this story. You might remember that this uh, whole scene here begins with Jesus on the previous day, which was the Sabbath, a Saturday back then, a day of worship and rest, going into the synagogue, their form of church back then, and he began teaching everybody about the kingdom of God. And you might remember as well that during that teaching, a man walked in with an unclean spirit, and Jesus cast out this unclean spirit in a way that only the incarnate Son of God could really do. And then after this time in the synagogue, they went to Peter's house to relax and get some food. But when they get there, Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and you got it, Jesus miraculously heals her, and she instantly and permanently gets up and begins to feed them, or feed, get, fix them some food. News gets around about Jesus' teaching in the synagogue, the unclean spirit guy, the healing of Peter's mom. And so by nighttime, people are lined up at the door, hundreds if not thousands of people 
from all over Galilee in this little town of Capernaum, and they want their miracle from Jesus. And it ends by saying that Jesus basically was giving everybody that came there their miracle, doing healing and even casting out evil spirits. And now it's the end of the previous day that our story here takes place. So add all this up. A long day that Jesus has had that previous day, no matter how you slice it. Teaching in a church, having it interrupted by evil forces, healing a sick woman, then spending the evening hours ministering to hundreds if not thousands who want their touch from God. Some of you whine that you have long, hard days. I hate to pop your bubble, but nothing compared to Jesus' day that you have in yours. I'm telling you, even for God come in the flesh, in human form, this was a long, long day of spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical depletion. And so what you would expect for the next scene to begin, would it would begin something like this. Jesus gets a good night's sleep, sleeps until around nine, and then begins another day of ministry. But that's not how it begins at all. Look again at verse 35. It says, and in the early morning, so now it's the next day, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. So Jesus gets up very early the next day. Obviously, Mark is making this very clear, but he says it two ways, early morning while still dark, which simply gives us the word picture that before the sun got up, Jesus got up. He gets up very early. And yet the reason he got up early was not because there's something magical about uh, praying or going to a quiet place while it's still dark. He did this to beat everybody else up so that he could get out and get away to a lonely place while everybody else was sleeping. Now focus on that phrase, lonely place, because this is the key and operative phrase here. Because the point of this passage, even though some Christians try to make it this point, is not that Jesus got up early. This passage is not telling you to have your quiet time in the morning. That's not the point of this. If morning hours are good for you, great. If midday is good, if evening is good, that's all fine. What this passage is trying to tell us about is that Jesus went to a lonely place or a solitary place, as the New International Version translates it. It's interesting, that phrase, lonely place, in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in are two Greek words that I'm going to teach you right now. They are the Greek words, aremos, tapas. Believe it or not, I want you to say that with me. Ready? Aremos, tapas. Again, aremos, tapas. One more time. Aremos, tapas. I would argue that outside of the Greek word agape, which means love, these are two of the most important Greek words you could learn. That's why I had you say them with me. You know, as many of you know, uh, the Greek language is much older than the English language, which means that we have English words today that actually tie back to Greek influence upon our English language. So we have an English word that all of you are familiar with. It's the English word topography, which means the study of land or natural places. And it comes from this Greek word here, tapas, which literally means a physical place or a location. So, so don't miss this. Jesus is going to an actual place, a carved out place that he found. We have no idea where it is, but somewhere around Capernaum. He goes to a carved out place of his choosing, a physical place in order to be with God. 
And yet it's not just any place, not just any tapas, it's an aramos tapas. And that word aramos literally means isolated, solitary, or in this context here, lonely. It means a place where there are very few people at. And this word aramos appears multiple times in the gospel stories. It's the aramos that Jesus was tempted in. We translate it wilderness. It was the aramos that John the Baptist preached in. Again, translated wilderness. You get the idea. It's a place where there aren't a lot of other people. So for our purposes today, it's the opposite of a mall or a football stadium or the I-17 interchange during rush hour. It's an aramos tapas. A lonely, solitary, very real, actual place, and that's where Jesus went to go. Now, with that understanding, what did he go to do there? The text tells us to pray. He went there to talk with God the Father. He went there to be with him, to focus on him in an undistracted way. And when you understand that, you start to see now something very profound of what Jesus is doing here that I call an outward, inward type of thing going on in his life. In other words, for the last 24 hours, Jesus has been outward focused, right? Teaching in the synagogue, healing people, casting out evil spirits, engaging with his disciples. So for 24 hours, he has just been totally outward focused. And what he's showing us here now is that he's going to now recharge inwardly. And the only way he knew to do this as the Son of God in a physical body was to steal away to an aramos tapas and engage in this avenue of prayer. Please see, it's an outward, inward logic being applied here. He had been so outward focused that he knew his soul needed to recharge. He knew that he needed to lift the hood and do business with God in an inward way. And Jesus also knew that if he didn't do this, even as the perfect son of God, because he was in the flesh, if he didn't do this, then he was going to be in a dangerous, depleted place on a physical and spiritual level. You know, maybe this will help. When I was pastoring in Detroit in the early 1990s, there was a man in my small group by the name of Rich. If you guys met Rich, you'd love him. He was a funny character, very likable, very, very laid back. He had done well for himself in business and lived in a rather nice house in Gross Point and drove pretty nice cars. And I'll never forget one day at small group, he mentioned that he had gotten a new car for his wife. And just making small talk, I said, oh, did you trade in the Jeep Grand Cherokee? And he said to me, no, it died. Now, I knew his car wasn't very old, so I said, it died. How old was it? And he said, four years old. I said, how many miles did it have on it? He said, 74,000. And I said, a, a four-year-old Jeep with 74,000 miles died. Uh, and he said, yeah, the engine died. The mechanic said that it's shot, that it's fried. And I'm thinking to myself, as you are, how does a four-year-old car with just getting started in today's world with mileage on it, uh, fry an engine. And then it hit me because I knew Rich. I, I said, Rich, in the four years, 74,000 miles that you own this car, did you ever change the oil in this car? And he smiled and said to me, no. I said, did you ever flush the radiator? He said, no. Did you ever change the transmission fluid, check the power steering fluid, or grease the joints? He said, well, they would have done that at the oil change, so no. 
I said, in the four years that you had this car, did you ever once look under the hood? And being kind of a smart aleck, he said, well, of course I did. I had to put windshield wiper fluid in it every winter. That was the only time that he ever checked under the hood of his car. And with this kind of maintenance, even a well-built newer car is going to last only about four years. And see, here's my point. I find that a lot of Christians live their spiritual life this way. Tell me if this isn't true. We drive and drive and drive. We go to work. We attend our kids' sporting events. We watch TV, go to church, maybe even attend a few Bible studies, but never bothering to look under the hood, never bothering to stop and do some maintenance on our own soul alone with God, except maybe once or twice in a particular season when we have to because things get really, really bad and God forces our hand. That's the best we do. Listen, folks, your soul is designed by God to be poured into, to connect with him on a regular basis. And Jesus knew this, and he knew that nothing short of a ramos tapas was going to do. That's why this is so important as an avenue for you and I. So here's the most important question I'm going to ask you this morning. And Cactus and Venue and Chapel, we're all in this together and that is where and when is your Aramos tapas? If you and I were having coffee this morning and I asked you where your lonely, solitary place is that you regularly go to, this place that only you have carved out of time and space to be fully with God, what would you say to me? We all need one. Where is yours? And the cool thing about the answer to this question, guys, is that the avenues or the, the, the multiple places that you and I have at our disposal today, it can only be had in 21st century living. You see, for some of you here today, you would tell me that your special Aramos Tapas is a special room in your house, a room that is quiet, without radio, without TV, a room that allows you to focus undistracted upon the Lord. When I first moved here, I was visiting uh, one of my friends that I just made when I first moved here in North Scottsdale at his house. And, and you know, being a, a kid from Chagrin Falls, Ohio, you know, we didn't have a lot of large, ostentatious houses here. But I don't know if you've noticed, Scottsdale's got quite a few of them. And so I was visiting my friend at his house, and it's this beautiful, beautiful house in North Scottsdale, and he was giving me a tour of it. And again, I love architecture. I thought this was absolutely amazing. And at one point, we walked through his master bedroom, and he wanted to show me his walk-in closet. Now, you might think big deal, but walk-in closets in North Scottsdale are about as big as our gymnasium across campus here. I mean, they're just huge. And so he's showing me this beautiful walk-in closet, and in the midst of it, there was this solitary, almost looked out of place, leather bench. And on this leather bench sat a Bible. And it was a really beautiful picture, and he said to me, this is where every day I meet with the Lord. Kind of added new meaning to the word prayer closet, but he said, this is where I, kind of like a prayer gymnasium, but this is where I, I, I meet the Lord. And I could tell in the way that he shared it with me what a tender, tender thing it was and that he really meant it. That was his Aramos Tapas, where he gets away with God. Uh, for other people I know, uh, their Aramos Tapas is their office at work. Some of you say, well, that's kind of busy and undistracted. Well, some people have mastered the art of saying to their staff or assistants, I'm not to be bothered during these hours, or they get in early or they leave late. Uh, some of you know that that works for you. 
Uh, still for other peoples, isn't this interesting? We get much more like Jesus. Our Ramos Tapas is a place outdoors, a private park, a deck off the house, a local hiking trail during very non-busy hours. A guy said to me a few weeks ago when we were talking on listening to God, he said, my favorite place to go and listen to God is Tom's Thumb. For those of you who don't know what Tom's Thumb is, that granite outcropping on the top of the McDowell Mountains, it takes about an hour or two to get up there. And it really is probably the most non-busy place if you time it right. It's not like Camelback Mountain or anything like that. And he just told me a story about how he loves to go there and listen to God. For others, there are Ramos Tapas as a workshop or a barn or a garage, anywhere that's your spot to be with God. You see, the places we can go to are as varied as we are as people. And the question is simply, where is yours? Because we all need one. And as you're chewing on this, notice with me further, now this is really important, that Jesus did this on a regular basis. In other words, this was not a one-off, or this was not uh, just a, a single entity that he did. It's interesting, Mark only records Jesus stealing away to pray on three occasions in his entire gospel, so you would think, well, maybe he didn't do this that often, but not so quick. Luke fills in the gaps for us in Luke 5, verse 16, when he says this, look up here on the screen, this is good. He says, but he himself, Jesus, would often slip away to the wilderness, the Aramos, to pray. You can't get more clear than that. He would often slip away. And you know, again, in some of the circles I grew up in, or not grew up, but I got, became a Christian in, you know, this idea of a quiet time and a devotional life became almost a legalism. Like, you know, if you don't do it every day, God's not going to bless you. And that's not what we're saying here. But what Jesus does show us, now don't miss this, is that though it's not legalistic, it surely is patternistic for our lives. It's part of the rhythm that we get into with God, that we have a regular aramos tapas in which we are to be with him to focus in an undistracted way upon him. And when you finally get to that place, you pray. You're focusing on God. You don't read the latest Grisham novel. You don't catch up on the news online. You don't call a friend to see how they're doing. I mean, that's what the world does. If I was speaking at some business lunch today where they just asked me to come and speak on how we can all rest and have more margin, and I said, well, steal away and get time away, that's what they would do. They would get away and they'd read a novel or they'd call a friend or they'd have some downtime. That's not what this is about, guys. This is work that you do with God in which you get away, you carve out the space, and then you start interacting with your heavenly Father. And the cool thing is, because I know some of you are intimidated by this, is that there are so many authentic, natural ways to pray. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence here that Mark doesn't tell us anything about the style or content of Jesus' prayer. Isn't that interesting? And we're rarely led into that. I mean, we got the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught us kind of a, a pattern of how to pray, pray, and then we have a little bit of the content of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But outside of that, we hardly have any idea of what Jesus actually prayed in his Aramos Tapas for the simple reason that they weren't there. That's the point. <laughs> You're alone with God. 
And the cool thing is that I've learned over the years is that there are just many ways for you to interact with God. I love it in his book, uh, The Smell of Sawdust. Richard Mao, who was president of Fuller Seminary for a while, uh, does the opening chapter on the fact that he's never been, you know, uh, a master at spiritual disciplines. When it comes to a contemplative life or, you know, having centering prayers or, you know, these really long prayer retreats, he's just never been really good at that. He's always been more of an activist. But he realizes that he needs to focus in an undistracted way on God. And it's interesting how he eventually found his spot. Now, this is almost going to seem to go against Aramos Tapas, but I find it interesting how he made it work for him. Here's what he says. He says, what I do is I regularly sing hymns in the car as I drive to work in the morning. A line like, oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be, can touch me in deep and hidden places of my being. I haven't read anything in recent literature on spirituality about singing hymns in cars, but I will trust that God has been long at work in me, shaping me by my specific personality that I am so that I may find my own hidden walk with the one who created me. I found that kind of interesting. That for him... One of the ways he communes with God in a private place in busy California would be in the car on the way to work. And my point is, is that there are many ways that we interact with God. For years, I kept prayer lists. I would journal all of my prayers. I have stacks of journals from the early days where I would write out my prayers to God. Some of you are good at writing. And then I'd go back and I'd look at the things that I was asking of God and I'd actually mark the dates when those prayers would be answered. I have a friend in Cleveland that's very formal and he prays through the Book of Common Prayer, which is an old-time prayer book. He just opens it up and prays liturgical prayers to God. I have another friend that's into what we call centering verses, where you pick a meaningful verse of Scripture and you kind of speak it over and over and over again to God as you connect with Him through what we call a centering verse. And then there's one of my favorites, what I call active praying. Again, for those of you who might like to be outside, get to a lonely place and be aramos, and as you walk, as you even hike with God, just have it out with Him, talk with Him. You see, the point of having an Aramos Tapas is for us to dialogue with God. And because some of you are saying, well, what do I say to God? Well, this is really for another sermon, but may I answer that very quickly on two levels. First, what do you say to God? Well, talk to him as if he's your friend. Tell him your heart. The Bible says to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. And so talk to him. And if you're looking for a guide, I have long used the acrostic ACTS. Look up here on the screen. ACTS stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Give me another click here, guys. And so if you're looking for how to have a kind of a, a guide to praying with God, I begin by adoring him, praising him for who he is. And we actually saw that in our video, right? Even the uninitiated guy. God, you're good people. You're good to the last drop. That's a form of adoration, as crass as that may be. And that counts, by the way. And then enter into a time of confession where you confess your sins before God. And again, some of you are saying, well, I don't know if I have any. I can't help you with that. But the reality is, is that you do. 
And so maybe you get alone before God and say, God, I don't even know of any sins. Would you bring some to mind? And then duck. And then after you confess your sins, thank him for what he's blessed you with. See, we're going with here adoration, confession, thanksgiving, because thanksgiving puts our problems in perspective. So before you even throw your problems out to God, just thank him. And then go into your time of supplication, asking requests of him. As we learned last week, he's a good father who wants to give good gifts to his kids. So ask your heart's delight and then accept from his hand what he gives. See, the point is we need to have carved out time and space, space to regularly be with God, a place to focus on God in prayer. And we all need it. Now, the reason that God wants us to do this, the reason this aremos tapas is so important is the second thing that we need to note from the story, and with this we're going to be done, and that, and that is this, and that is that being personally with God prepares you for what lies ahead. That's what the story teaches us here, that, that, that once you learn to regularly carve out time and space with God, here's the deal, it will prepare you for whatever lies ahead. So you're saying, where is this? Uh, look one last time at this story here, and I want to show you this, because it's hard to see, but once you see it, you're going to be amazed. It says, and Simon and his companions hunted for him. Hang on to that word for a second, hunted. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Hang on to that phrase, looking for. So you got hunted and looking for. And he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. I ask you to hang on to two phrases, hunted and looking for. Uh, that word hunted means what you think it means, hunted. <laughs> Not a positive term in any context. It means that you have an agenda, you're out to get somebody, you're looking for them, and when you find them, you're going to land them, just like we might physically hunt today. The disciples were hunting for Jesus. And what's not as clear, but it's very clear in the original language, is the nature of that phrase, looking for, there in verse 37. Here's the deal about that phrase. That phrase in the original Greek, looking for, is used ten times in the Gospel of Mark, and get this, it is never used in a positive sense. In other words, every time that phrase, looking for, appears in the Gospel of Mark, it appears in the sense that they were looking for Jesus to get something from him. Not to submit to him, not to follow him, not to see how he's doing, but to get something from him. So add this up together. They're hunting for him. They're looking for him. Why? Because they want their miracle. He had just gotten done doing all these miracles the night before, and word had gotten out. And the disciples are even excited about this, going, man, look what he did to Peter's mom. I mean, this is our, our, this is our day. Our, our, our train has come in. And so they're all looking for Jesus. Now why? Because they had an agenda for his life. And their agenda was going to be to capitalize on this miracle-working thing that Jesus would do. And as we'll read on later on in Mark, you can read it yourself, eventually their agenda is going to be they want him to set up the kingdom of God here on earth. And yet it's fascinating. Jesus' agenda is going to be very different than the disciples' agenda. As we learned last week, miracles are at best second place things for God in his economy. The first place thing was that people would connect with God, know God, find their sufficiency and satisfaction in God, and that's what Jesus means when he says, hey, I came here to preach. 
That is what I came for. Now, here's what you need to see. Because Jesus had stolen away and gotten with God as Father, and the Gospel of John next year will teach us this, this regularly connected Jesus with God the Father in such a way that he stayed focused and centered on why he was on planet Earth, which was to preach. And what many Bible scholars point out is that one of the reasons Jesus in the body went away on a regular basis to commune with the Father was to stay centered and connected with the Father. And you see, I think there's something in that for you and I. Tell me if this isn't true. Do you have people in your life that have an agenda for you? (laughs) You do. You have people that are hunting for you, looking for you, and they're good-hearted people, and they want what they consider good things from you. you got a boss that's hunting for you and looking for you. you got kids (laughs) that are hunting for you and looking for you. You got a spouse. I'm not going to go any further with that one, but at times it's hunting for you and looking for you. You have friends that are hunting for you and looking for you, and they all want something from you. Amen? I know you're afraid to say amen, but it's true. They all want something from us. And here's where it gets tricky. What they want are not bad things. C.S. Lewis brilliantly said it when he was on this earth. He said, life is made up of first place thing and second place things. And second place things are not bad. Second place things are all the things that you and I pine after. A good job, a good career, kids that turn out pretty good, a great marriage, finances that are okay, satisfaction, a few hobbies. Those are all second place things. And second place things are good things, but they're not first place things. There's only one first place thing, and that's you and God. And you having the kind of relationship with God that's going to take you the distance in which you find your sufficiency and satisfaction in. And yet it's so easy in life, isn't it, to take first place things and put them into second place. And when you do, second place things become first place. And quite frankly, the well-meaning agenda that a lot of people have for us is precisely that. No one feels it more than a pastor. I have people always after my time and my energy, and if I wasn't careful, I would allow all the second-place things in life to consume me. That's what the disciples were doing for Jesus, and he would have none of it. He stayed focused on the first-place status thing in his life, and that was his purpose as the Son of God coming. And I believe that much of that stemmed from being with the Father, from his aramos tapas. And so the only way you and I are going to be focused and prepared for what comes ahead is by spending quality, carved-out time with God so that he might speak to us and we speak to him. And when we do, look out, spiritual sparks fly, and we're ready for what's coming down the pike. I could tell you story after story about how this works, but I'll just tell you one that's extremely fresh that happened to me yesterday. (laughs) I was having my Aramos Tapas time with the Lord, And I was uh, reading, I'm reading right now through Samuel, and I'm done with Samuel. Now I'm reading into the Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings. And so I was just reading through, and I got to chapter 12. And as I was reading and spending time here with the Lord, I I, I read about Rehoboam. Now Rehoboam was the first king of the divided kingdom in, in Judah in the south, and he would not end up being a good king, but it tells us in chapter 12 why. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter for you, but the bottom line is that Rehoboam had a choice early on in his kingdom, and that was to either try to alter some things that Solomon had done, because Solomon was very hard on the people, 
or to continue to do what Solomon did, and it probably wouldn't go very well with him. And, and he needed to make some wise choices. And so early on in the chapter, I'm reading about the fact that the people came to Rehoboam and said, your father made things hard on us, lighten the service on us, and we will serve you. And Solomon said, go away for three days, and then come back, and I'll give you my answer. Now, it's interesting. During those three days, you know what Solomon did, and what Rehoboam did? He sought wise counsel. And he sought counsel from the old men around him, and then also from the young men around him. And as you can imagine, the older or wiser men said what? Hey, make it easier on the people. Solomon was too hard. We've been around. This was really, really hard on them. And if you make it easier, it's going to go well for you in your new leadership role. But the younger men said this. They said, no, these people, they have no idea what they're asking. They're just whiners. It's in the margins here. They're just whiners. And, 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 and you need to tell them, and this is a direct quote, that my father may have made, may have made the yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. That's what they told him, Solomon, or Rehoboam to tell the people. You know who Rehoboam listened to? The young men. He went back and he basically told that to the people and they didn't fall down and call him blessed. They eventually rebelled against him and Rehoboam eventually died not going down well as the first king of the divided kingdom in Judah. So I'm reading all of this in my time with the Lord and you know what hit me? It was not clear. God knows exactly what he's doing. I am faced all the time with decisions here on behalf of our church, in which I, as a senior pastor, am called to make it. Do not hear me saying I'm a king. That's as far as that goes. But I am faced all the time with having to make decisions. And I hardly ever make decisions in a vacuum. I make decisions by seeking wise counsel. I learned to do that years ago. And as I was in this aramos tapas with God, what the Lord spoke to me once again through his holy, precious word was, Jamie, who you listen to? And are you listening to wise counsel? And is the wise counsel that you're listening to, counsel that is born of a lot of experience from people that have been around a long time and have proven themselves with me? Or are you just listening to people who want to tell you what you want to hear? See how subtle that can be. And, and, and because this is a time of prayer, I put my Bible down and I just breathed a prayer to God and I said, oh God, May I never make the mistake of Rehoboam. May you give me wise counsel through godly people around me. And may they be men and women of experience who know you and can speak rightly into the lifeblood of our church. And you see, by spending time with God, here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced I'm preparing myself still for what's coming on the pike. I don't know what decisions I have to make in the next few weeks or months, but God does. And in my time with him, he once again nudged me in the direction that he wants me to go. I'm telling you guys, God does this all the time. I could tell you story after story after story about how by spending time with him in my solitary place, I get to know him through this avenue of prayer. And in through knowing him, I'm prepared for what lies ahead. So here's what we're going to do in our time remaining right now for, for this service. We're going to uh, pray here in a minute. I, I'm going to call the ushers forward for our offering. And then when we're done praying, Troy is going to lead you all in a time of worship and prayer. So we started the sermon early. Do not leave. I know that puts some of you on the spot right now if you get up. Don't. Because if ever I needed you to stay and enter into some time of worship to apply what we're learning here today, today is the day for that. 
So as our ushers come forward, we're going to receive our offering. I'm going to pray, and then I need to head off to uh, the Mountain Valley campus, but I will um, be with you next week. And I'll be praying for you, too, as I head up there right now. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thanks for your grace. Thanks for your goodness. Thanks for all that you are to us. I pray, God, that as we um, enter into a time of giving now and offering, that you would receive this as ones who love you and want to be faithful to you and, and provide for your kingdom. I pray, God, too, that as we enter into a time that Troy is going to lead us in, in prayer and focusing upon you, that, Lord, this avenue would become a regular, regular part of our carved-out times of life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.